This is an ABC podcast. You see, it's the second chord. The second chord's the one I like. Pretty sure Bohemian Rhapsody's in there somewhere. Oh, Welcome to the wow. Minefield. Uh, this is a program about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host and uh, had a lot to do with that new theme. Is it the second time I've heard it? I think it's growing on me, Scott. You like that, do you? Yeah, I think I do. Like I say, the second chord's the one that makes it. Yeah. I did actually have you in mind, but you notice that... That little sort of the guitar with the wobble. I think there's a little something interesting going on oh, okay, there. Right. Well. I've got to pay another little to musical instrument just to kind of hold out the bread, you know, to to toss out the breadcrumbs yes. to our avid listeners. You know, where did these, where did these different lovely sounds Maybe, come um, from? Next week we'll check in and see how the guessing game has gone. Um, why not? If you are wondering why the hell you're listening to us at the moment. Um, <laughs> That's perfectly reasonable because we have changed times on the radio show. Uh, so we are now on RN on Thursday at 2pm and the Sunday 10am uh, show remains in its slot. The show is, is longer than it was, so it's a full hour now. Uh, and that means that we do all of the thing, the whole thing. There's no podcast extra. We just do it all as one block and it goes out on a podcast as it is. Um, so I think we've covered that off. When do we get to stop saying that, Derek and Scott? Next week? Well, I, th- I think we'll probably give it another couple of weeks but can i mm-hmm. can i tell you something that i'm kind of worried about uh, yes. one of the nice things so so for you know listeners who have been with us for a little while we had 25 minutes on air 25 minutes is just enough to clear your throat it seems to me i mean you're only just making your guest feel comfortable and that's and your usually well thought, eat, isn't it yeah the two of us only have kind of <laughs> vaguely begun to articulate what it is we think we want to say before 25 minutes is up so we always spilled over into an additional say half hour of conversation so the podcast that's been going out on our international feed has always been around sort of the 45 to 55 minute mark but one of the nice things well i don't know if you felt the same way Whenever we got off radio and tipped over into the pot, it was kind of like we entered that illicit little zone where, you know, the stuff we couldn't really talk about on air, now we really get to get uh, into yeah. it. And it often added a little bit of frisson, just a little kind of, I don't know if naughtiness is quite the right word, but it meant that we went in directions that neither of us, I think, ever. The shackles were off. And the shackles were off. And one of the concerns, I, I still don't know if we're being punished or rewarded uh, with being given this extended time slot on radio, but either way. I don't know. Is it going to feel the same way okay, once so here, we've gone beyond the 25 minutes? Here's my proposal. What yep. if I say goodbye now <laughs> and then we do the whole show as though it's not on now let now let the naughtiness begin. Okay. That's it for the minefield. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Go. We should probably explain the topic today. We, we should explain the topic. And this is something. We have this list of topics that when the time permits and when the guest we really want is available... We're going to do it. And this is one of those topics that, well, Ed, I think we've talked about on and off for the better part of four years. It's something that exercises both of us very deeply. I think it's fair to say that we both have skin in this particular game. It's something I think we've touched on fleetingly. Certainly every time we talk about social media, some of the things that we want to talk about here have come up. But this is the first time we've ever devoted a show to what I think is the dominant element in our social media and our media ecosystem. And that is opinion writing. And I know that for a lot of people who are consumers of news media, opinion is just, especially if you read, say, a site like The Guardian, and I'd say that the lines of distinction between opinion writing in The Guardian and quote-unquote news gathering in The Guardian 
I think it's probably more blurred than many other news outlets. There is a strong, if you like, editorial value that runs through the news gathering services, the way that the headlines are pitched, and that sort of comes to full fruition, whether it be in The Guardian's view of X, some event, or the particular cast or stable of opinion writers that they tend to have writing for them. There's Any a, more there's, than The Australian? Uh, I wonder if less than The Australian, actually. No, I'm not sure because, no, no, I actually think there's more homogeneity than there is, or certainly the last time that I really read The Australian avidly. I think there's probably more homogeneity in The Guardian than there is currently in The Australian. I think simply because the political outlook, the moral stakes that have been elevated by The Guardian are probably a little bit more unequivocal. They're probably a bit narrower in some respects. That's not a value judgment. I'm just trying to sort of describe. May I, uh, may I throw an idea in there that may be yes, ill-conceived please. and ill-considered, but is nonetheless how is I new? feel at the moment, <laughs> and that's enough these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think you might be hard-pressed to find a newspaper, certainly in Australia, where what you've described isn't true. Hmm. So I, I think that the you know there's, lead, what, there's a strong voice there's a strong voice in the news gathering, and then that voice is simply more explicit in the opinion pages. Is yeah, I mean, mean you mentioned headlines, which in some ways is the best and worst place to look because headlines yeah. I think are promiscuous very often because they are trying yeah. to they're basically an advertisement for the piece, That's so right. they're trying to attract you, and the person can I make this clear as someone who does have a column. The author does not write the headline. <laughs> so That's right. the number of times I get in trouble because someone's upset with a headline on a piece is extraordinary. And I think readers often don't understand that. Um, but I think the idea, part of this is the whole online ecosystem, I, I suspect, that the relationship between fact-gathering reporting and opinion and editorial slant and so on, it, it's, it, it's becoming so blurred everywhere that I think this is just now a phenomenon for us to, to deal with without necessarily talking about individual publications. Yeah. And sorry, can I just say, Walid, that I think this stems from two things. One is what, uh, actually one of the Guardian's founding, uh, what was she? Uh, She wasn't an editor. She was one of the central people in taking the Guardian digital. Emily Bell, who remains for me one of the very, very finest media critics. She's called it the tabloidization of everything. That is effectively the great trend that's taken place yep. in the news that's over the last two decades. That's a very good way of it. I hadn't heard that. It is. Yeah. It is, isn't it? Uh, so, so I think even, even news gathering is packaged with a kind of tabloid slant. I, I think some news outlets do it much, much better. But I also like your term promiscuous because there is always a bit of a striptease involved. You know, this happened, you'll never guess what happened next. Or I am a... I don't know, scientist with a CSIRO, you wouldn't believe what I discovered. So there's always that. But I think the other thing that's happened, I think people have underestimated the degree to which Twitter is not in fact, or, and Facebook for that matter, are not in fact word-based platforms, but image-based platforms. Mm. Uh, and because of that, they are fundamentally purveyors of emotion, of little tidbits that need to be digested and felt immediately and thus passed on almost instinctively. And because of that, the sheer emotive content that needs to inhere to anything that has any chance of circulating wildly 
wildly or widely on these platforms. Uh, that then tends to set the tone. I, I, I mean, I, I think there are other elements here as well, and this is where moral language also comes into it. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure whether the moral turn in a great deal of opinion writing and news gathering. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think that's another element to this too. Okay, I'm trying to take notes because these are things I want to return to. Remind me if I don't to okay. talk about the emotional slash emotive uh, element of contemporary media and None. opinion yep. writing because I think I might have something to say about that. But we can we return to opinion writing? Please. Um, you said we've been wanting to do this for four years. That's not true. You have. Uh, okay. You've been driving at this for a very long time. Uh, I've felt somewhat that this is your attempt to try to steer me into all kinds of trouble, to put me on trial, as it were. You had a crack at that last year, by the way. That was quite fun in the end. I want to know why you want to do this. What What yep. is it that has made you say that opinion is such an important topic for us to dis- discuss mm. as democratic citizens, really? Yeah. Well, Ed, I wasn't putting, I'm not putting you on trial. Uh, I mean, I've got skin in the game too. I'm an ABC opinion editor. So I'm one of those people that receives pieces that judges their viability, that judges the quality and worth of the argument, that judges certain criteria on the basis of balance of opinion, the worthwhileness of the argument. Is this argument appealing to any one other than the tribe of the already convinced? Mm-hmm. Is there too much or not enough ad hominem in the argument? Is there so? And I'm also one of the these horrible people that affixes headlines, and I do everything in my power to ensure that it's not salacious, that it's not trivial, that it gives you an accurate sense of what's inside, but it doesn't prejudge the conclusion. So, well, I've got skin in the game too. If anything, I'm probably more culpable than you, poor. You know, beleaguered opinion. I like like the sound of this. This is good. Um, Nonetheless, why do you think it's important? Well, we forget that there was, in fact, a time in which opinion did not exist. Opinion writing as an institution, as a fixture of the popular press dates back to the 1830s. I mean, you could say that, say, party political pamphlets from the late 1830s. 18th century. You could say that that maybe is kind of a precursor to opinion. I don't think so. Because one of the things that opinion is meant to do, I think particularly in our time, and there is, this has precursors back in the, in the 19th century, it is meant to convey a degree of emotion. It is supposed to tell you not what the news says, but it is meant to tell you what you should think about the news that has, in fact, been gathered. So there is a degree of value ladenness. There is a jumping to a particular conclusion. I know you've heard this, but this is what it means. This is what it means for you. But I think the other thing about opinion, Willie, that goes right back and, you know, some very, very perceptive figures, the best one to my mind uh, was Soren Kierkegaard in the late 1850s, who was horrified by the directions that opinion was taking. He said that that what opinion does is it gives you your moral conclusion without making you do the moral effort of reaching that conclusion. He said that opinion, what it effectively is, is a kind of fashion item that you put on so that you can go out and wield your opinion cheaply and show it off as a form of moral vanity. But all that opinion writing and opinion regurgitation really is, is a form of cheap, pseudo-moralistic chattering uh, without any of the soul energy 
the soul work that goes into responsibility for one's own opinion. Some of my favorite remarks, though, are in, say, uh, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. He's got this wonderful, wonderful moment with the member of this preposterous figure early on, uh, Stepan Akardiyevich, uh, who, uh, who says that he would no sooner go outside without a hat than he would without an opinion drawn from the newspapers. Um, uh, Gustave Flaubert in Madame Bovary does exactly the same thing. So I think this element of fashionability. Opinion isn't just something that you have. Opinion is something that you show off. It's something that you flaunt. And when you bring together the idea of opinion for hire, someone else has done the hard work of gathering, of framing that opinion, and now offers it to you as a commodity for you to read, for you to ingest, for you then to wear and to flaunt, either by regurgitating it, by rehearsing it, by simply absorbing it into yourself without the hard work of achieving it in the first place, or then by retweeting it or by liking it. These are all things, I think, that have effectively served to devalue the hard work of gaining, of owning, and then taking responsibility for opinion within a democracy. But I think there's one other thing that I want to add to that, Waleed, which I'm not sure you're going to like quite as much, but I'm, I'm going to have a crack at it anyway. I think really good opinion writing, and I'm, I'm a sometimes opinion writer. I, my favorite literary form to publish is, is an essay. I just don't think you can do anything in 800 words. I, I really don't. There are exceptions to that, but I think it's incredibly in the hands of a really skilled writer. And there are a number of things that you've written that I'd put in that category. There are a number of things that our guest has written that I'd put in that category. But I think the extent to which opinion tries to deliver a sense of belonging to a moral cause, rallying people together around something that's worth standing for, and therefore rallying people against, or rallying people around something that's worth standing against. The introduction of moral language into opinion writing I think is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly dangerous because it gives you a sense of communality in a common cause without the hard work that needs to be done in A, forging that communality through actual deliberation and B, through characterizing one's opponents as being morally less informed, morally ignorant, morally inferior. And I think what that then does is it has the effect of not allowing you to see the world through different eyes or registering another person's, if you like, moral charge, their particular moral intensity. But instead, it confirms one in one's own particular moral valence or moral prejudice, and it gives you very fine-sounding highfalutin words or reasons for not listening to the other side. Yeah. If I can just put it this way, the best opinion that I have ever read, the best opinion I have ever published, has been opinion that doesn't simply cater to the tribe of the already convinced and give you highfalutin moral reasons for doing so, for belonging to that particular tribe. But rather, I don't often quote John Paul II, but in his first encyclical, uh, John Paul II said that any church teaching worth its salt cuts diagonally across 
the partisan divide. And it seems to me that that's what the best opinion writing does. It has the effect of a kind of gestalt switch. It makes you see things or pick up intensities that you did not see before, you couldn't see before, and therefore it makes reality as a whole look a little bit differently. In other words, it's the beginning of the effort of moral opinion forming, and it's not the end uh, of that emotive process. That's my that's my case. That's everything I've well, it's not everything I've got to say, but that's my that's my worry. That's my concern. That's my hope. It's very well put together, Scott. You should write it as an opinion piece, except <laughs> no one would publish it because it doesn't pop enough. <laughs> I don't want to respond too much at length, but there is so much there that I would like to respond to because I'm immensely attracted to the ideas that you've laid out there. But there are one or two aspects of it that I, as much as I want to agree, I'm not sure I do. Hmm. And that is to do with the idea that, no, let me start with the moral language point that you make. It's an irony that you've reached that position because so much of the conversation we've had on this show is about the absence of moral language and the absence yep. of morality in so much of our public discourse that we have developed an amoral public square that doesn't that's inattentive to things like moral formation and moral argument and so on. And now yep. when that appears before you, you recoil. For reasons that I think are understandable, I would summarize, I hope I'm not wrong in understanding it this way, that the reason you recoil is that it's not moralizing the public square really. It's a cheap version. It's an ersatz version of morality. And that's exactly kind right. of a, right. And here is where I, th- I come to so, my so, other... So sorry, just as a footnote to that, Waleed, moral judgment is the beginning of the conversation. Yes, rather the than end. the conclusion. Okay. So, 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 so is... as soon as you have moral grandstanding or moral vanity, that for me is not moral argumentation. Okay. That's posturing. Understood. Yeah. Where I think I disagree with you is that removing that moral language from opinion writing isn't necessarily the answer. I think what's happened is this sort of delegitimation of the other side immediately so that there is nothing that you need to engage with from those who disagree. In my perhaps romantic or nostalgic view, that was always corrected by the presence of the other side on the same page. Mm-hmm. So good opinion editors would do that and good opinion pages would do that. And it's possible, it's arguable that those are starting to slip from our public view and particularly as social media gets involved and curates things for you so that you don't, the great thing about the newspaper for me was the sort of quasi town hall function that it served that you mm-hmm. were forced to run into things you wouldn't have agreed with. Right? That, right. Well, if they were well curated, that's what would happen. So, I'm but the just, unbundling, the unbundling of magazines of newspapers, so that you read articles as standalones, I think. Yes, that's, and that's social media broad. exacerbates that, that because that's right. Yes, you're being fed things via your friends or whatever it is, algorithms, yep. whatever. Um, there's that. I just want to make one other point, and that is that everything you spoke about about the seriousness of reaching moral conclusions and so on, I think, is right, and that is why I, I have a perpetual crisis uh, as just as a person. And that is that I wonder if opinion writing is among the most dishonest jobs you can have. Hmm. Because the idea that you put forward about an opinion for hire, I know you were talking about it from the other side, from the reader's side of that equation, but what about the producer's side of it? The idea that you have to have an opinion every Wednesday is, when you think about it, a crazy requirement. Hmm. It's the kind of specialization of generalization. That necessarily means that you are hearing opinions that are formed in a way that is rudimentary embryonic. I I think about this all the time. 
and it uh, I hope it sometimes inflects what I produce, but it doesn't resolve the moral questions around whether or not I or anybody should be producing it. I wonder if a better world would be one where there are no columnists, where the opinion pages are only filled with those who have something specific to say at that specific moment because they've developed that point. I'm not going to press it too far because then I would have to disappear in a puff of irrelevance, but it's a question I've thought about for a very long time. Look, Walid, I think that's a remarkable point for two reasons, and I'll say this very briefly. My mother, she's still alive, but she said this to me a long time ago. She had this wonderful little proverb. She said, Scott, if you don't know how to pronounce something, say it confidently. <laughs> and, and the number of times that I feel, truly, the number of times that I feel that the volume that's been turned up on a particular opinion is a direct reflection of the uncertainty with which that opinion is being held. Mm. In other words, there's a degree of posturing that is it's covering up. Yeah. It is performance. And I think that performance then gets taken up by those who read it and pass it on. The other thing, though, Walid, I, I mean, look, I, I have a profound moral objection to the idea that we ought to have an opinion about many things. I think W.H. Auden was exactly right that one of the great forms of moral liberation is to say that not only do I not have an opinion, but I have an obligation not to have an opinion. Yeah about that. And I need to be able to claim the ability of silence as a way of preserving the conditions of my own soul. I mean, I think that's right. But one of the things, and I'm not, I would say this about you, even if you weren't my conversation partner, the thing that I love about the way that you write is the moral hesitation that accompanies almost every other paragraph. These slight steps forward, but immediately inflected by a degree, maybe not of self-doubt, but of creating the space where the other person can, in fact, respond. I, uh, that, 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 for me, is invariably the mark of excellent, excellent opinion writing that leads someone through the process rather than simply morally, you know, sort of bombarding them with certainties uh, at precisely the point where a degree of listening is, is required. I wonder whether or not it undoes the overall dishonesty of the enterprise. Anyway, uh, this is the Manet Field. I said that very confidently. <laughs> you can listen to the show on RN uh, at the new time of 2pm on Thursdays if you're trying to catch up with why things are all over the place for us this year. It will soon settle. So 2pm on Thursdays. You can also catch up with the Minefield at 10am on Sundays. It's the repeat of the show. Of course, anytime uh, you like on the ABC Listen app. And the show exists as a podcast, although not with extra content any longer because the show has been extended to the full hour. Um, but you can subscribe Subscribe to The Minefield as a podcast wherever you subscribe to your podcast more generally. Scott, we've got a guest that I think we're both quite excited about. Oh, we are very, very excited. Uh, I said that there are two opinion columnists that I fundamentally admire and respect in the world. Well, lead you're one, our guest is the other. Ross Douthat, for more than a decade now, has been an opinion columnist at the New York Times. He's also the co-host of, uh, I'm not going to call it a rival podcast. I think it's one of those few other podcasts in podcast zone that's in fact worth listening to. <laughs> it's, it's a called companion the podcast. A companion, a companion <laughs> podcast. Uh, he's the author of a couple of remarkable books. The most recent is The Decadent Society, How We became victims of our own success. Ross Douthat, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you so much for having me, um, even if I bring my opinions clattering behind <laughs> me like Jacob Marley's chains or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Ross, let's, let's begin with this, because 
Look, something Waleed and I have talked about, I mean, we, I understand that you might be constrained what you can say, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Um, one of the things that Waleed and I have often talked about is I've felt that during the conditions of the Trump presidency, the New York Times comported itself remarkably well, I think much better than the Washington Post, that kind of splattered a degree of easy and easily transferable uh, pseudo-democratic moralism across virtually all of its forms of, and I'm not saying there were bad forms of news gathering, but it, there was a kind of moral overlay that I thought diminished the quality of the Washington Post's offerings for the most part. The New York Times has been very, very clear, very clever, I think. I know you don't quite agree with this in its distinction between news gathering and opinion, but I think the temperance that has tempered or chastened its news gathering has on occasion been undermined by the turning up the volume too much in certain voices in the opinion or the editorial columns. How have you thought about the task of, as a, if you like, a non-Trump Republican, how have you thought about the moral task, the moral obligation that adheres to your particular vocation in writing the opinion that you do for the organization that you do? Well, first, I mean, as an employee of the Times, obviously, I will, you know, accept all of your compliments and dismiss all of your criticisms. Um, <laughs> just so that that out of the way, I'll just speak about my sort of my personal perspective, which is that, yeah, I mean, I, I have sort of a curious role, which is, I think, distinct from a lot of opinion columnists in that I write primarily for an audience that disagrees with me. I'm a conservative and not only that, but some sort of religious conservative. And um, I, I think, you know, even in distant Australia, I imagine most of your listeners know that most readers of the New York Times are not religious conservatives. Um, so I start out writing for people who differ with me, which is it's why I don't know if this is at all useful for your discussion, but I, I sometimes think more in terms of the word argument than the word opinion. Um, in the sense that I always have a pretty good sense of sort of what positions I'm arguing with and I'm sort of engaged in a kind of it's more a running dispute, I suppose you could say, than sorry, can I um, ask you a, Ross, sort of, a running dispute with yes. your readers or a running dispute with yourself or with like Well in this in this case it's often it's a it's a mix of a running dispute with other people in my profession right. and with yeah, and with a certain segment of our readers who you know, I mean, people will come up to me and say, I read your column in order to, you know, be challenged or be annoyed or be mm. infuriated or things things like that. So that's that's sort of a baseline. But then, of course, the Trump era has made everything much more complicated because, you know, presumably in a normal conservative administration, I'd spend a lot of time defending the administration's policies and maybe defending the president himself. And I did a lot less of that under Trump because I didn't think he should be elected president in the first place and thought, you know, even the policies that I agreed with were usually marred by some degree of malice or incompetence. Um, but I did still feel that in my role, you know, there was an obligation not just to write anti-Trump columns every week. Um, in part because, you know, to maybe go partway with your point, there were plenty of other writers, including my dear friends and colleagues, who were making those arguments consistently. Um, and so I, yeah, I sort of spent, I spent a lot of time trying to find places that were 
neither full-throatedly pro-Trump nor sort of simplistically anti-Trump. And I tried to write a lot of columns in that zone, sort of here's what's wrong with Trump, but here's what's going wrong with liberalism even so. And, you know, whether that was the right approach, um, as, you know, it's hard to say. And maybe in five or 10 years time, we can look back and have a clearer sense. But I, I, I would get criticized and still do get criticized, and obviously even more so after the slightly insane way that the Trump presidency ended by people who agreed with me that Trump was bad, but thought that in sort of finding this middle space, I was not taking the threat he posed to American democracy seriously enough. Um, and I thought they were wrong, but they could be right. They could still be vindicated. We'll see. Um, so anyway, that's sort of very generally how I've thought about my my role and vocation and what I can sort of do usefully for my readership in this incredibly peculiar period in American and world history. Do you know what's interesting, Scott, though, about the way you framed that question was uh, I uh, write for the New York Times as well, or at least I have I've been a contributor at times on a like contracted basis. And what was interesting is the pro the editorial process of publishing a piece for them compared to a piece in any of the Australian papers was far more exacting and inevitably far more restraining. So while you talk about the New York Times, and I, I don't know this isn't a podcast about the New York Times or a show about the New York Times, but it, while you talk about the sort of ratcheting up of the opinion page, which I think there's a truth to that, it clearly wasn't true for everyone who was writing there. And no. I can tell you that from personal experience. No, that, that, that's right. And I, was, I wouldn't use that broad brush to characterize most opinion writers for the Times, but I think columnists. So, Ross, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong. It wasn't that long ago that Paul Krugman was far and away the most left of center regular contributor to the Times opinion pages. Now you would say that he's probably, to some extent, on many issues, probably a little bit closer to left of center uh, than many of the others. Look, again, this isn't a value judgment, but I guess what's been striking to me is that there's been this degree of temperance. There's been this self-chastening um, to a far greater extent than many other partisan news outlets in the United States about the rhetoric, the particular terms that are used about the Trump administration, very sober headlines, very sober and, and even self-critical forms of news gathering, of self-questioning, of the kind of humility, I think, that's proper to forms of public communication. And then you read down a few more lines and you have these eyebrow blistering titles to opinion pieces that it's almost like, again, I'm not necessarily criticizing. I'm, I guess I'm just trying to describe the experience of what I regard as the best news outlet in the world, still maybe giving in a little bit too easily, a little bit too quickly to one of the great conceits of our time, which is that opinion writing is the great online commodity. It's the thing that drives traffic. It's always going to appear in your top say three of your top five articles that are trending in any given, on any given day. Uh, but without reckoning, I think, fully with the cost that that exacts, both on our moral life, because I do think cheaply held opinions are morally stultifying, they're morally impoverishing, but also what opinion writing should do. And I, I guess, Ross, the thing that your columns do is that they enact a kind of gestalt switch. You read things, but because of the way that you do it, it, may, it makes you see reality through a different valence that might 
you might disagree with, but at the same time, there's a degree of sympathy there that makes you incline in a little bit further. So, I mean, again, that's very kind of you. Um, but let me, well, let me say a couple of things, right? So one thing specific to the Times, um, and then I'll talk more generally about the, the internet. Specific to the Times is that you're, you're right that, that Paul Krugman has gone from sort of representing the left of the page to not certainly not being the only voice on the left and not, you know, sort of representing the same position that he held. That, though, partially reflects just the fact that American politics, you know, in spite of and in certain ways because of Donald Trump, has generally shifted leftwards since um, Krugman was attacking George W. Bush way back in 15 or 16 years ago now when I was but a child. Um, and American liberalism, which, you know, the New York Times speaks to and for, has especially shifted further to the left. And I think if you look at my colleagues who are columnists who are sort of working there full time, including Michelle Goldberg, who I do the podcast that you kindly mentioned with, Jamel Bowie, um, some others who've been hired in the last four or five years, Many of them are sort of to the left of Krugman, but I don't think of them as sort of being particularly intemperate. Um, you know, there's no reason why you can't be to the left of Krugman or anyone else and still sort of do the kind of sort of serious, rigorous kind of opinion work that you're saying is, I think, rightly is sort of the exception more than the rule. But sort of stepping back from the times itself, right, you're you're absolutely right that the transform one of the many transformations that the internet has brought to journalism is this realization that people really do like opinion um, in a way that is you know measurable and quantifiable via clicks and attention in a way that it never was when you were just sending people a print newspaper every day and that inevitably has you know it, i mean the newspaper industry is a business um you know we, we exist to inform but also to entertain and sell newspapers sell subscriptions sell advertisements and so on so it's it's not remotely surprising that this has pulled newspapers um the post the times every newspaper that's still working in the united states in a more opinionated direction and it's you know it's created dynamics where there are just clear commercial advantages to sort of flooding the zone with um shall we say you know somewhat below average opinion writing right um that's all real i don't know though that when i look at sort of what seem like the biggest problems in the way people consume news right now. I don't know if that kind of what you would call clickbait opinion is the biggest problem. Um, I mean, I think what you guys were talking about with social media earlier, this, you know, idea you floated about sort of the social media being sort of image based and so on. I mean, to, to me, social media, especially Twitter, which is the social media I use most and the journalists use most. Twitter is just fundamentally different even than clickbait, right? It sort of immerses you in a sea of opinions. And, you know, you can sort of get swept up in a current of conformity if you're, you know, if your Twitter feed is conformist and get pulled along in a particular direction, or you can get sort of swept up in a cacophony, but it's a totally different kind of experience than sitting down and reading even the most clickbaity, um, I, you know, I, I'm not going to come up with a good clickbait headline on the spot, but you can, you know, the most clickbaity op-ed. So that's, that's one shift. And, and then I, I think the shift, you know, I, I think the shift in the way people 
experience news and sort of what people expect from news writing. And, and this may be more true in the States than Australia. I don't know. But that's been the profound, more profound shift of the Trump era to me that, you know, I, and I do think we've resisted it at our best at the times. But I think all over the place, you have this sense that it's not just that opinion writing is supposed to be to have this sort of clear moral point in every column. It's that news writing is. And so you constantly have this coverage of, you know, above all Trump, where he will say something that's a lie. And the news story will have to say this flagrant baseless statement by Donald Trump, mm -hmm. right? Which, you know, I mean, usually it is a flagrant baseless statement, but it's this sort of I, I don't know. I, I think that's more of a novelty, more of a difference from the way journalism seemed to me 10 or 15 years ago than the sort of clickbaity headline on op-ed pieces. Uh, you are listening to The Minefield. Um, things have changed around here. So if you want to know exactly when we're on and for how long and all that sort of thing, there's a program guide at abc.net.au slash rn. If you search for The Minefield there, you will get all the details. Uh, the ABC Listen app, you can listen to us anytime. And as a podcast, you can listen to us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. We'll lead Ali. My name's Scott Stevens, the name of my co-host. And Ross Douthat is our guest today, New York Times opinion columnist and host or co-host of his own podcast called The Argument. We're talking about opinion writing today and the role that it plays. Uh, there's one other dimension to this, Ross, that I... The way you framed it is true, I think. Um, this is sort of unconventional news reporting, I guess, but that's in response to a, a deeply unconventional presidency that sort of forced that reporting's hand. In the absence of it behaving in that way, it would kind of cease to be news reporting. So it was there was this invidious position that I think news reporting was in. I think what bothers me a bit more than that is just reflecting on my own experience as a reader of things, the amount of times I discover the news, like I discover f news facts, if you like, through a, an opinion or analysis piece. That, if you like, the original source material, the origin of of this, of my awareness of some particular event, isn't in a news report. It comes to me already digested, and I don't do this deliberately. I do this either just through my the own like the weaknesses of my own preferences or through just being in an environment that means that these are the things that come before me first and foremost. I worry about that. You, there's a question about the quality of opinion writing and all that. Yeah, sure. But first and foremost, is it just the problem of opinion writing not being put in its proper place? Not even having a proper place, really. A place that is being determined now effectively by the market, which is not a place that has anything to do with news or journalistic values or even civic and democratic ones. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's important to remember, right, that some of these distinctions that we're talking about, above all this sort of news opinion distinction, are inventions of the newspaper industry during a very unique time in its history. Um, and, and again, I, you know, I don't, this may not map perfectly onto Australian newspaper history. And certainly in the UK, there's sort of more of a tradition of a partisan ideological press than there was for this window in the States. But in the States, for about 50 years, you had these incredibly powerful newspaper monopolies that basically could say, we are going to take this sort of view from nowhere 
And we are going to sort of report the news in this incredibly straight, dry, even-handed style. And then we're also going to have some opinion pages attached. And that was, you know, I, I think that was a great thing in many ways. It's the kind of journalism that I grew up reading. It's the kind of journalism that I sort of associated with democratic politics. But it wasn't the kind of journalism that defined, you know, 19th century politics in any way, shape, or form, right? It wasn't the kind of, you guys mentioned the pamphleteers earlier, it certainly wasn't the kind of journalism you got around the time of the French Revolution. And now, you know, the 18th and 19th centuries were pretty turbulent in their way, and we can think of reasons not to want to go back there. But there are ways in which I think that you don't, you don't want to spend too much time sort of trying to emphasize and preserve a distinction that was constructed for a very particular economic model of journalism. But it was a distinction, Ross, that pertained for so long. Like, this is very recent, what I'm talking about, this feeling at the very least that I have. But don't you think some of that is, see, to me, and again, we may may get our news in different ways, right? right? To me, what happens is it's less that I encounter news through a Guardian opinion column. It's that I encounter news through social media where there is an underlying news story somewhere in there, and then it's under layers of commentary from these different tribes of social media, which is, I think, somewhat different than me putting some news, putting a story into one of my columns and surrounding it with with an argument, right? I don't know. So we we are different in that respect, I should declare, because I've never been on social media and I avowedly never will. So I don't have that mechanism for for getting news. But in some ways, that makes my point stronger, doesn't it? I mean, if the reason that you might encounter it that way is because of this weird new mechanism that's there, and yet I'm not engaged in that weird new mechanism, but it's still happening to someone like me who's not part of that ecosystem, then surely that tells us that something very fundamental has changed in the place that opinion has just in, just ambiently, I suppose. I think the idea of opinions ambience is a really, really interesting one. I mean, just to go back for a moment to my beloved Tolstoy, I've always found it fascinating that when Stepan Akadich is kind of reflecting on his life with newspapers, he says that he doesn't change his opinion any more than he determines what is in fashion and what is not. His opinion changes according to the prevailing opinion in the newspaper that he reads. And I guess one of the things that I'm really curious about, and pardon me for kind of bringing this back to the level of moral formation, I do think that cheaply gained, cheaply garnered political democratic moral opinion is really, really problematic. Most often because the process, I mean, the person who sort of gets their gets their political or moral opinion that way is the same person who gets to the end of Lord of the Rings and asks, why didn't Sam and Frodo just take the eagles there? The, the, the way that you get well, that's to the because point. the Nazgul would have taken the back. <laughs> I mean, this, this is not a hard. I can't believe you. Hard I can't believe question. you answered that. I uh, can't believe you I, answered that. I, this I, is this is a frustrating question. No, obviously the, the Nazgul have. You know. Anyway, sorry. Go on. The way I 100% that you get there, can believe he answered that. <laughs> the way that you get there matters. The tools you acquire along the way, the friendships, the colleagues you make, all these things matter. Uh, and and so this kind of this foreshortening, this kind of rushing straight to the conclusion, and then that conclusion simply becoming yours, such that you can rehearse it well, or you can sort of you know emblazon it upon your social media profile. I think all of these things are great moral ills. Here, here's what I want to ask the two of you, though: What does 
good opinion do? Sorry, I think, I mean, we can, we're, we're running out of time. We could spend plenty more time talking about all the bad. I do think the worst form of opinion writing, by the way, is I'm feeling this really strongly. I haven't got the words for it yet, but I'm feeling it really, really strongly. So I wrote this op-ed. I mean, that's becoming, that that's so prominent at the moment, even in otherwise quite reputable news outlets. Uh, that's the sort of thing that should simply be placed beyond the pale of what's publishable. But for the two of you who are who I regard as excellent opinion writers, what does the best kind of op-ed do? What does it do to the person writing the op-ed? What does it do ideally to the readers reading the op-ed? You first, Ross. I mean, I think what, what you were saying earlier is probably right, that there's a sort of, you could say, orthogonality of a really good op-ed where it doesn't, it takes a story that you're following closely and it doesn't go where you think it's going to go, but it goes somewhere that's interesting and fresh and, you know, leaves you sort of provoked, provoked without being enraged, right? There's sort of a space, a very small space in there where you're reading something that you are inclined to disagree with. And it's just sort of interesting and striking enough to sort of get your hackles up a little bit, but not doesn't go so far that you don't actually sort of you know, take in what it has to say and consider its arguments seriously. So it's that, I think it's that combination. It's sort of, you want something that goes where you don't expect and you want something that provokes in a way that still leaves you taking the argument seriously, even if you, even if you dis disagree with it. And I think just one more point, since you, you know, I, I do feel compelled to stick up a little bit for the honor of the, the toiling columnist, right? Which is that a good columnist is someone who, who does that in a way that the reader can sort of come to them on a weekly, monthly, you know, every few days basis, have this experience and also see the columnists themselves sort of developing their mind, changing their mind, sort of, you know, encountering the world and being altered by it over a span of many years. And you don't want to go on too long. I think probably, you know, there's no one who can be a good newspaper columnist for 40 years without taking long sabbaticals. It should probably be done in five to 10 year chunks. Um, I'm talking myself out of a job right now, but that, that is, that is, I think that common, that that's the virtue of the regular columnist. That's different from the one-off opinion piece, the one-off essay where you have a mind, you know, it's someone who you feel like, you know, and you're in conversation with, and you're watching them be in conversation with themselves. Hmm. I'm hanging on to that. That's the best um, yeah. justification of, Got at this point, I I, um, I think I, I have very little to add to Ross's description of what makes good opinion writing. The only thing I would add, and and this I don't mean this to um, be at odds with the point that you're making, Scott, because I do agree with it, is I do think there is a very limited place for that opinion piece that doesn't cut diagonally across. Um, that does take a very clear position and just argue that, even without much consideration of the other side of the argument. Hmm. Uh, I think it's very limited, but I think it does apply where that argument simply is being overlooked or is somehow absent from the hmm. conversation. I think bad opinion writing, or at, or at least dull opinion writing, is that which jumps on board an already fashionable, clear argument that a whole lot of people understand and simply um, sings to the choir. In that way, but if there's no choir, 
then I think it is appropriate to sing that song. Isn't I, 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 I do think there is a role for that sort of thing. Look, that, that resonates incredibly deeply with me. Um, the, the great political philosopher George Kateb has this wonderful insight that the great democratic grace or benefit of partisanship within a democracy is when one party is in power, it lets you see all of life through that particular political valence. Mm. Which means that for a period of imposed time, you have to see the world the way that people you fundamentally disagree with. Which I, I think sees. is less and less true. I think that's probably less and less true, but by God, I like the philosophical principle. Uh, I like the idea the of it. I wish that were the case. I just don't think yeah. it, it's what's happening. Can I just add one other thing? Though, Scott? Please. Because you raised a really important part in your question that we've just completely glossed over, which is what does good opinion writing do for the writer? Yes. And this is where I feel, I feel most moved by that, that question. Speaking entirely for myself, when I sit down to write something, at the forefront, it, it, I see it as a process of me trying to figure out what it is that I think about something and trying my best to come to grips with the world that's in front of me. I, there's an element of persuasion, I suppose, in what you write, but in a very real way, I'm the one that I'm seeking to persuade, which mm. sounds crazy, but there's that famous quote from E.M. Forster, um, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? Mm. And I, I feel like I experienced that quite a lot, that thing of I might have a tentative view, I might think I have a view, but when I come to express it in this way, in a way that's accountable, right, which is why I really do believe in the importance of gatekeepers in this aspect of it. I believe in a good editor, not a bad one, but a good editor, because there is an element of accountability that makes your ideas better over time. I think it's what happens to the writer in that process. And that is the one thing I would say I can genuinely believe in, in the virtue of the columnist is that they having to go through that process regularly, I think can mean notwithstanding Ross's entirely valid point about sabbaticals and so on. I think it can mean a certain refinement over time because of the sort of steady drumbeat of accountability and, and self-discovery, mm. if you like, that accompanies that process. Ross, how accountable, how responsible should opinion writers be for their opinions? I mean, account they should be accountable in the sense that they should try. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, your opinion should add up to something, right? Um, and this is, again, sort of a point about writing over a long period of time. But, you know, one of the things that just at the crudest level, one of the things that separates the partisan hack from, you know, the person who you actually want to read is whether they maintain consistent opinions when their team or their ideological faction is or isn't in power. Um, so that's sort of a baseline form of accountability. Um, and then you know, there, I mean, there, there is sort of a, an interesting question about, you know, what, what happens to the pundit who is catastrophically wrong about some incredibly mm. important issue, right? Um, and the answer is usually very, very little, <laughs> right? And, and this is, you know, this, I mean, it, depending, there, there, are, there are circumstances where, where being catastrophically wrong can have a negative effect on your career. Um, but in general, that that absence of account accountability, I think, is the best 
argument for your suggestion that it's all, you know, it all just ends up as sort of like you're selling, you're selling provocations. Doesn't matter if the provocations are true. The readers will come back to you even if they've all been false. You're like, you know, the astrologer or the, you know, the the guy making the betting line and you're always wrong, but people are there for the entertainment value or something. So that's, that's, I think, you know, and, and we do things, I write columns that sort of look at predictions I've gotten wrong. You know, there are a lot of people who try this sort of pundit accountability, personal inventory thing, but it also has its limits. And that, that too can end up being sort of performative. Oh, look at me. I'm so accountable. Um, David Runciman, who we had on the show last year, uh, is very fond of saying, always listen to betting markets over pundits because betting markets have actual money on the line <laughs> uh, when it comes to democratic outcomes. Can I just one really quick answer to your point? You yeah. I think the accountability, I think the importance isn't in hindsight. I think it needs to be part of the process. Yeah. So if there's accountability in the production of the opinion, um, to use sort of horribly industrial terms, I, I think that's in some ways more important than the hindsight mm. accountability. That is interesting. I mean, I, I guess I've always been moved and I, I take him very seriously because he was kind of present and horrified by opinion as it was actually being given birth to. But Soren Kierkegaard kind of wondered what on earth could move a person to reach the point where they say, my God, I have something that everybody needs to hear mm. without that my God, becoming fundamentally cheapened. He said that the only opinion that's worth having is the kind of opinion that is born out of long periods of silence where you kind of cross the existential void and reach the point, yes, I'm willing to be responsible for this. I, I I'm love, willing to actually place my soul on the line. I love this. I love Kierkegaard's newspaper. It would publish three opinions over the course of its life. <laughs> and it would probably be very high quality. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> Ross can write one of them. There you go, Ross, you're in. Um, we are out of time, uh, gentlemen, but uh, we could keep going forever. Um, the ABC will not let us do that, Ross. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time, so thank you very much for gracing us with your presence today. You're very welcome. Thank you for a splendid conversation. And now I'll get back to, you know, opi opinion <laughs> your column. <laughs> my, my one... No, my, my Kierkegaardian, the Kierkegaardian newspaper is something that I will carry with me out of this conversation. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, Ross Douthat is an opinion columnist at the New York Times. He's the co-host of the Argument podcast. Uh, you can find him there. Scott, thank you very much for raising this. I did enjoy it. We are done and we'll see you next week on The Minefield. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.